exceptional people, Miss Leanne Manis, South African personality and media star. Good evening. What an absolute pleasure to be here with all of you. Um, I believe you've had one exceptional day, and I can promise you that tonight is going to be an exceptional evening. And obviously I'm deriving the word from what's hopefully going to become uh, an event that is often held here, where you get these exceptional individuals to come and give exceptional talks. Well, I don't think you could have kicked it off with a better person, with an individual who... I think is in the center and the minds of every single South African at this point in time and who has done and is doing such an exceptional job. So it is a great pleasure to be here and to be able to facilitate this discussion. Um, basically how it's going to work is that we're going to get um, our, our guest, the advocate Tuli Madonsela, to come onto the stage, chat to you for a little bit, and then going to invite her over to the couch over there. We'll have a little bit of a, a conversation, and that's where I want you to get involved as well. It's not every day that you get to ask the public protector a question, and that is a reality. Uh, this lady is a very busy lady, and she's investigating things that you and I would shy away from. The, but the reality is she runs towards it, and it's amazing. <laughs> Imagine investigating your boss. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. Anyway, um, enough from me. What I want to do is I want to, to introduce this lady to you because I, I, I don't want to steal any more time because time is of the essence today. I know you've had a long day, but I really, really want to give um, uh, Public Protector as much time as possible. For those of you who don't know much about her, she was born in Soweto in 1962. Her father was an informal trader and her mother was a domestic worker. I'm not going to go too much into the life and times of uh, Ms. Tuli Madonsela, but what I am going to tell you is that she was a social worker at one point, she was a midwife at another point, she was a teacher at another point. But then, of course, I think what we most know her for is uh, her time spent in law. And she's a human rights lawyer, she's an equality expert. And one of the, the biggest things we owe our gratitude and thanks to the advocate is the fact that she was one of the 11 technical experts that drew up our constitution in 1994 and 95. And that is an accolade that deserves a round of applause. This is a constitution that is celebrated around the world. It's a constitution that has allowed you and I the right to do so many things that were never previously allowed. Just being in this university together and succeeding in so many avenues, uh, really it is thanks to the Sterling Constitution with the help of the public protector. Um, she was named, and I don't think I need to remind you, but I'm just going to emphasize it because uh, the morning that she was named, one of Time Magazine's 100 most influential people was just one of those mornings where you think, ha, the world is watching us and the world knows what's good. And I think that by her getting that accolade just reaffirms that the work being done in this country is setting the boundaries for a lot of other countries. And it's ladies like the advocate that's leading the way. So she deserves this title more than anyone, in my opinion, um, uh, that lives here in South Africa. And a huge congratulations to her.
And then, of course, that brings us to who she is today. Back in 2009, uh, advocate Tuli Madonsela was voted in, not by any contest. This never, ever happens. Can you imagine every single different political party in parliament agreeing on the same thing? Will it actually happen? And probably for the first time ever in the history of South Africa. And that was the day where 100% of parliament voted in favor of Tuli Madonsela becoming South Africa's next public protector. And that happened back in 2009. And today, she still heads up that with that position, with the vigor, with the integrity, and with the humility that many of us can only admire. Ladies and gentlemen, please put your hands together for the amazing public protector, advocate Tuli Madonsela. Thank you, Leanne, for that very kind introduction, which was so generous that it made me doubt if I'm going to be able to live up to those expectations. <laughs> Vice-Chancellor, Professor Rensberg, members of the Executive Management of the University of Johannesburg, UJ, deans, student leadership, members of the convocation, illustrious alumni such as Brendan van Staden, CEO of Interactive Technologies, Situhane Manchidi, head of CSI Investec, Laki Litelu, chairperson and executive of ICRD Group, alumni of UJ, pre-alumni, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, what a privilege and honor it is to be here tonight. I'm truly humbled by the privilege of addressing you today on the special occasion of UJ's Alumni Day and Convocation. I thank the, the Vice-Chancellor, Professor Rensberg, for the honor of being here, and Professor Maluleke for approaching me. I also understand that the university is celebrating 10 years of its existence and the excellence it has achieved in that single decade. I've been advised that the celebration tonight includes the launch of a book that talks about the journey that UJ has traversed in the last 10 years. It is amazing how much you can accomplish when you refuse to use excuses as a crutch. UJ could easily sit back and blame its circumstances on apartheid. After all, it was born out of the unity of primarily two universities with disparate histories and purposes. Congratulations on choosing the pursuit of excellence. Your success proves that where there is a vision, 
there is a way. If we choose excuses, on the other hand, we'll always find plenty of them. Yesterday was World Hunger Day. We were told yesterday that about 26% of households in our country are facing starvation. Many children in our country go to bed without a meal. There are plenty of excuses we could use to explain why it is so 20 years into constitutional democracy where section 27 gives every person the right to adequate the right to access to sufficient food and water. We can also explain why a child has to die in a village because he is using a makeshift pit toilet. We can also explain why there are still schools that are built out of mud and schools where learners learn in dilapidated classrooms. We have plenty of excuses that can explain why some children in villages learn in rooms where about two or three grades are learning in one room. We can explain why a child in a village somewhere in Guazulu-Natal and the Eastern Cape has days that are called no-school days. because the roads are too bad and can't be used during heavy rains or there are no bridges. But in your case, you have chosen the high road. For those of you who have read Scott Peck, that's the road where excuses are not used when clearly it is possible to act and make a difference. In your case, we have understood that it takes more energy to explain that which can't be explained than to simply take action and make a difference. You remind me of what Margaret Mead once said. I quote, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful citizens can change the world. 
indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. I'm certain that in your vision of an excelling society, as part of your art of accomplishment campaign, you include non-sexism and the achievement of gender equality as envisaged in our constitutional vision of the South Africa we have chosen to become. Why bring gender equality on an event like this? Well, for two reasons. The first reason is that women constitute more than 52% of the population. And they constitute about half of the world population. The second reason is today is take a girl child to work. People have complained, <clears throat> excuse me, why take a girl child to work? What about the boy child? Indeed, what about the boy child? The reality is, 20 years into democracy, women have made great strides into becoming better than second-class citizens, but they still are second-class citizens in some ways. It is work in progress. That's why it's still important that we bring the girl child to work so that she can understand how workplaces operate, so that she can understand that her place is anywhere where she chooses to be. In any event, why leave half of the world out of the solution? If we're trying to, to find a world that performs better in terms of food security, economy, good governance, and the environment, we need both men and women to participate. We need all of the brains we can find. And I believe that that's part of your vision. I've seen the leadership of this university integrated in terms of race, and gender, and that tells me that you are harnessing the diversity of humanity to achieve the excellence that you, you seek to achieve. I thought I would engage you very briefly tonight about the pursuit of good governance in the context of your chosen, your chosen theme of the art of accomplishment. The starting point for me is a poem by James Patrick Kinney. Since I recited the poem last week and I'm not a poet, I thought tonight I'm not going to recite the poem. I will tell the story behind the poem. The poem is about six people trapped by happenstance.
in a dark, bitter, cold place. They're sitting around a fire, and the fire is dying. It's bitterly cold and dark. Each one of them has a log of wood. The first man looks at the dying fire and looks at his log of wood. He sees a black man on the other side of the fire and thinks, no, I'm not going to use my log of wood because I don't want somebody who doesn't come from my race to benefit. He keeps his log of wood. The second person looks around and sees somebody who comes from a different church than his. He looks at his log of wood. He looks at the other person. He decides, I will not let somebody from a different religion benefit. The third person, a poor person, looks across and sees a rich man. He looks at his log of wood and he decides, not a chance. I'm not going to let the rich man benefit from my log of wood. And the rich man not knowing what the poor man is thinking, looks at his and, and thinks, the idle poor, I'm not going to let him benefit from my log of wood. The fifth man, a black man, looks across at the white man, doesn't know that the white man withheld his log of wood because of, the ra- of his own race. He looks at his log of wood. He also decides, I'm not going to let the white person benefit from my log of wood. The last man, a missionary, who in his entire life has never done anything without gain, decides, these people are not going to pay me. Why must I use my log of wood? And he decides not to use his lock of wood. You probably know what was their fate. The poem ends with the following words. They didn't die from the cold without. They died from the cold within. As human beings, we social beings. Our survival depends on what we do individually and collectively. But like the six men, how often do you refuse to act because you think, I didn't create the problem. Whoever created it must solve it. How often do we refuse to participate in structures because we think it's not for me? Let the politicians handle it. I'll just complain when they do it wrong. (laughs) 
Well, earlier on, I came across a quote from Plato about refusing to participate in politics and the punishment you get is to be governed by a certain kind of humanity. I'm not going to say what kind of humanity, but just Google that and you will find out. Good governance. When we think about governance, we always think about government, which is the management of public affairs. But governance applies beyond what happens within the state and within government. Earlier on, we heard from Professor Rensberg, the Vice Chancellor, talking about the vision of this university and what you have done to achieve the excellence you celebrate today. He also appealed to this convocation to participate in further steps to take this university forward. So governance happens at different levels. I will start at a personal level. Again, going back to Plato, Plato says the most important battle for every human being is to conquer yourself. If you can't conquer yourself, forget about conquering other people. So governance starts with self-governance. As I indicated, we're social rule, we're social beings, and society is governed in terms of common visions, common values, and then rules that regulate how we're supposed to behave. So governance is about managing yourself to ensure that to the best of your ability, you give to society more than you take from society. And if we all had to do that, we would have a better world indeed. We have to govern ourselves in families as well. And the example of those people who died because they wouldn't take action to revive the fire applies to families as well. If we always apportioning blame and not playing our part to fix things, things fall apart. But more importantly, tonight we're concerned about organizations and the country as a whole. Earlier on, I had Professor appeal to this convocation to participate in what I would refer to as a food security scheme for students in this university. That's a request that you take your log of wood to ensure that those young people get food. A couple of weeks ago, or a couple of days ago, we learned about young people that are said to have resorted to prostitution because they were hungry. You could say, like the people who didn't use their logs, that it doesn't concern me. It does. If they get HIV, the pandemic gets energy in our country and it becomes a national problem. If they can't finish their studies because they become sick, 
they become a burden to their families and to, to our welfare system. And if they give birth to children who are not properly looked after, we end up with a cycle of poverty and possibly crime when those young people don't know how to look after themselves. So that's a part of it is um, playing our part in society by acting to improve the conditions for ourselves and fellow human beings. And the second part, though, and the very important part, is playing our part in the governance systems. In organizations such as universities, you have rules, you have codes of conduct. You can't just leave it to the people that have been appointed or elected to run their affairs. We need to play our part in keeping the fires burning. How do we do so? By pointing out how things should be done, by volunteering to do some of the things, and by holding those who have given power accountable for the exercise of that power. At the level of society, what does the poem tell us? A few weeks ago, we elected people to those we gave the power to govern our affairs. We said to those people, I quote, here is the power and our resources. As you lead the public institutions, we have appointed you to lead. You must do so for our benefit and within the confines of the law. That's what you said when you voted people into power. What do you do after that? You don't wait for another five years for them to be held accountable through yet another voting process. You work with democracy as a dialogue with them to ensure that guidance is provided on what policies need to be put in place to ensure that they take care of your affairs and ensure that what they do is responsive to all of your needs. We, take, we also participate in planning processes and lastly, we participate in mechanisms to hold them accountable. Mechanisms to hold those in government accountable are plenty. We have a, multi, a multiple accountability framework in South Africa. You can hold those in public power to account directly through asking them questions, writing to them, requesting meetings as individuals and as groups, preferably as groups because as individuals it might be just too much trouble to speak to about 30 million of the 50 million people all the time. You can hold them accountable through internal structures that they have uh, that consult with the public through outreach, in bezos, etc. But our constitutional democracy, the new constitution that we adopted as an interim, in nine, as an interim constitution in 1993 and, and uh, final constitution in 1996, formal accountability mechanisms were created. These include 
institutions supporting constitutional democracy, such as the Public Protector, the Auditor General, the Human Rights Commission, the Commission for Gender Equality, and the Commission on the Rights and Linguistic Rights, and on, 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 on linguistic and cultural rights of society. You can work with these institutions by reporting any conduct that you consider to be improper. If it's the public protector, you can report what you consider to be improper. If it's the auditor general, you may report any accounting irregularities that you see. If it's the Human Rights Commission, Human Rights Matters, the Commission on Gender Equality, uh, issues relating to equality between women and men. There are also institutions supporting constitutional democracy that are not in Chapter 9. These include the Public Service Commission. These institutions hold government accountable to ensure good governance through administrative mechanisms. It's a new concept to have administrative accountability mechanisms. Traditionally, you've heard political accountability, which is what I've spoken about, voting, and then finally parliament holds the executive accountable through political structures. Then we've heard judicial accountability where the judiciary has the power to examine the acts of the other arms of government, and if they have failed to act within the confines of the Constitution, to strike out those actions as unconstitutional. That's the judiciary. With the new constitution, we have administrative accountability. Administrative accountability is very important for you as citizens because it allows you to participate very effectively in democracy as a dialogue. With administrative accountability, if I can give you an example of the public protector, we investigate in terms of Section 182 of the Constitution. We make findings and we report and we take appropriate remedial action. But the appropriate remedial action we take is to direct government to do something. What if government doesn't do anything? I've heard members of the public saying they haven't implemented your reports which is some of them, not all of them, it's a minority of them, but they would say, they haven't implemented your report, that means you are a toothless dog. <laughs> well, I was hoping that the key message I'm going to leave with you tonight is that if I'm a toothless dog, that means society is my teeth is dead. Because because a public protector operates as the conscience of government and the voice of the people. Once we have made a finding of wrongdoing or improper conduct as required by Section 182 of the Constitution, Firstly, it's up to the wrongdoer to correct things. That's where self-management comes in. They have to do the right thing because they themselves are convinced that is the right thing to do. But when that fails, 
you as society have to come in and demand that the right thing be done. It's not necessary to wait for the courts. Of course the courts can step in, but building into our constitutional architecture institutions such as the public protector was meant to strengthen your hand as society to strengthen your participation in democracy as a dialogue. An ombudsman, such as the public protector, reports and then takes the matter back to you as society. That's why we go to the media, because we can't speak to 30 million of the 50 million people, assuming the rest are children. We can't speak directly to each one of members of society. We go to the media and say, this is what we have found. Now work with us to ensure that corrective action is taken. We call it moral suasion because as society, we know as society what is right or wrong. The other day I was listening to a documentary about ants, about how ants are so organized. But they organize in such a manner that everyone knows what their role is in society and anyone who steps out of line is corrected by that ant society. Democracy requires that we all play our part. We don't keep our log and say the public protector is going to use her log. We all use our logs of wood to ensure that we keep the fire of democracy burning. What is good governance? What is our role as the public protector and your role as, 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 as civil society? The United Nations has indicated that good governance has the following elements. It is consensus-oriented, it is participatory, it follows the rule of law, it ensures that organizations or the state, if it's at the level of the state, are run with effectiveness and efficiency. That there's accountability, transparency, responsiveness, equitability, and inclusiveness. So when we investigate improper conduct in state affairs, we use some of these as touchstones. We use the law, but proper conduct, even here at this university, proper conduct is not only about not breaking the law. Proper conduct includes obeying the organizational code of conduct and acting in a manner that respects and exhibits the values of this institution. Is it not so? The same applies in government. That's what we have to expect. Section 182 is not only asking people in government to obey the law. It's asking them to act properly. How do they act properly? They have to act in such a manner that the vision of society that is created by the Constitution is realized sooner rather than later. The Constitution wants a society that is as follows. I quote, We the people of South Africa recognize the injustices of our past, honor those who suffered for justice and freedom in our land, respect those who have worked to build and develop our country, and believe that South Africa belongs to all who live in it, united in our diversity. We therefore, through our freely elected representatives, adopt this constitution as the supreme law of the republic, so as to 
One, heal the divisions of the past and establish a society based on democratic values, social justice, and fundamental human rights. Two, lay the foundations for a democratic and open society in which government is based on the will of the people and every citizen is equally protected by law. Three, improve the quality of life of all citizens and free the potential of each person. And four, build a united and democratic South Africa able to take its place as a sovereign, as a sovereign state in the family of nations. Everything that government does and that corporations do and organizations in society do should contribute to creating the society that is envisaged in the Constitution. For those in government, there are rules, therefore, in terms of how they're supposed to operate, and that's part of the architecture uh, which defines the character of the state. Section 96, for example, tells us that those in the executive have to act ethically. That means they have to avoid self-interest and conflict of interest in the way they deal with our resources. Section 195 talks about putting people first, using public resources efficiently and economically, primarily for the benefit of all. Section 237 talks about ensuring that All constitutional obligations are performed diligently and without delay. Those are the things we look at from our side when we're looking at promoting good governance by identifying maladministration and working with those in government to eliminate it. I've already indicated the the role of those in civil society generally, that we have to participate in policy making, planning. At local government, there's even something called integrated development plans. We all have an opportunity. It's not just for poor people to attend those IDP meetings. We all have an opportunity to attend those IDP meetings to ensure that the things that are captured in the integrated development plan truly give priority to things that are going to develop our people. And primarily we must ensure that IDPs put basic needs first, whilst ensuring that we become a globally competitive society. And our role is to participate in those structures and ultimately to participate in the process of ensuring accountability. In other words, we all have an important role in ensuring that our state is accountable, operates with integrity at all times, and is responsive to the needs of all our people. If we do so, we're not going to die from the cold within, because we'll use our log of wood to ensure that the fire is not just sustained but the fire of democracy, of constitutional democracy, is given more energy so that the things we have failed to do in the last 20 years of democracy are done in the next few years of democracy. The child who goes to a pit toilet should be history. The children who have no school days should be history.
and the children who learn in classrooms where there's two or three grades in that classroom should be history. And we can all play our part in ensuring that this is done. We can do so, so says Margaret Mead, when she says that, never doubt that a small group of citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. Thank you.